Candace Elmore was born on November 19, 1989, in Lincolnton, North Carolina. As a young girl, however, it was found that Candace suffered severe neglect at the hands of her biological parents and was subsequently removed from her birth home. At the age of five, Candace was adopted by a pediatric nurse named Jean Newmaker. Although Newmaker worked hard to give the girl a loving home, Candace demonstrated several behavioral difficulties after the adoption, leading Jean to seek out the help of several professional therapists. None of the treatment Candace received was particularly effective, and it was theorized that Candace had developed an attachment disorder as a response to the significant neglect she experienced early in life. When Candace was 10 years old, Jean learned of two therapists in Evergreen, Colorado, who were considered experts at treating attachment issues. Influenced by glowing reviews about the therapists, Jean decided to pay the $7,000 fee for a two-week intensive course at their Colorado Treatment Center. The program was run by Connell Watkins and Julie Ponder, despite neither of them being licensed mental health professionals. As part of their two-week treatment, they utilized a technique called rebirthing, or birth regression, whereby the child was placed in a simulated birth canal made of blankets and pillows. The child was then encouraged to fight her way out of the canal, while the therapist pushed back, resisting her efforts. The theory was that the child would then be reborn to her new parents and attached to them the way a newborn infant would. Candace and Jean participated in the first week of the program without any problems. By all accounts and treatment records, Candace was doing well in the program and making progress. During the second week, she was scheduled to be reborn to her adoptive mother, Jean, by being put through the rebirthing process. Watkins and Ponder recorded the session, where they also employed the help of two assistants who were supposed to play the role of therapeutic foster parents. After Candace was wrapped in sheets and blankets, she was encouraged to push her way out while the four adults pushed on her with pillows, at times putting their full body weight against her. Eight minutes into the process, Candace began crying and pleading with the adults, insisting that she could not get out. After 10 minutes, she yelled repeatedly that she could not breathe. She begged for the therapist to stop pushing on her, with Ponder and Watkins continuing to tell her that she needed to fight her way out. Candace continued to struggle for another hour, pleading for them to stop and alerting them she was having trouble breathing. At one point, Candace told the adults that she felt she was going to die. The therapist responded by telling the girl that she could die if she wanted to. Candace again struggled, vomited, and defecated on herself, and still the therapist continued with the rebirthing. Ten-year-old Candace eventually stopped moving or making any sounds. It was at that point that Watkins and Ponder stopped the session to discuss what to do next. Thirty minutes after Candace stopped speaking, Watkins and Ponder unwrapped the lifeless child. Realizing that she was not breathing, they began CPR and called 911. Candace was sent by helicopter to a hospital in Denver, where she was declared dead the following day. Both Julie Ponder and Connell Watkins were charged with reckless child abuse resulting in death. Both pled not guilty. At their trial, the videotape of the 70-minute rebirthing session was played for the jury. While Candace could be heard pleading for them to stop and telling them she was going to die, both Ponder and Watkins said they did not believe her. Ultimately, both women were convicted and sentenced to 16 years in prison. Both Watkins and Ponder have since been paroled and released. Jean Newmaker and the two adults who participated in the rebirthing session all pled guilty to negligent child abuse resulting in death. 
Newmaker was sentenced to four years probation, while the others received a 10-year probation sentence. Candace Newmaker's death became a national story. It resulted in legislation in both Colorado and North Carolina making the so-called rebirthing therapy and birth recreations illegal. In one of the most disturbing details about the rebirthing session that came out at the trial, Candace, exhausted and scared from fighting, finally resigned herself to not being able to escape. Despite fighting as hard as she could to break free, her last word was in response to the therapist who asked her if she wanted to be reborn. She quietly said no before suffocating to death. This episode is about the death of Candace Newmaker. and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. And this episode, we're talking about another case out of Colorado. I didn't actually live here when this happened, but I think you did, David, didn't you? Oh yeah, I grew up here, so I definitely heard about this case. I remember talking quite a bit about this case and Candace's Law, which made rebirthing therapy illegal in Colorado. Uh, while I was in graduate school. It was, as you can imagine, a big topic. Yeah. So, David, you and I both have experience working with children who had been abused and neglected when we worked at the Denver Children's Home. And I haven't worked with kids in many years, but I found my time at DCH to be very emotionally difficult, you know, as a therapist, but it was also really rewarding work. It could be very rewarding work uh, if you knew how to manage your own investment in it, which was probably the, the single biggest challenge. Because if you became invested in what was going on in the lives of all these children, emotionally invested or too emotionally invested, I should say, it could be very, very draining. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, it's hard not to take on that level of hurt and pain when you're working with kids. Yeah. So, you know, Jessica, when I first heard about this case back in 2000, I have to admit it gave me the creeps. I was fresh out of college and upon learning the details of the case, uh, had to come face to face with the reality that there are some really, really psychologically damaged kids out there. I think this is an easy enough concept to grasp in the abstract, but it becomes much more poignant when it's embodied in the form of a child. One of my first jobs coming out of college was working with mentally and emotionally disturbed kids at one of the many group homes that we have here in the metro area. Anyway, my experience working with the attachment disorder kids lends me to have a lot of compassion for those parents and other family members who seek to help them. I get it. I mean, I don't get it, but I get it. 
I think that many parents, particularly those who adopt children, probably don't have a full understanding of the possibility of the mental health issues like reactive attachment disorder that could be part of this adoption. There was an article back in 2014 in Psychology Today about a woman who adopted a child from Russia who had come face to face with this disorder. This is, of course, after dedicating herself to being this child's parent. Obviously, children are not merchandise. You can't just send them back and ask for a refund. So many of these parents wanting to adopt children adopt children with abusive backgrounds that can lead to very difficult mental disorders. This was the case with some of the kids at the facilities I used to work at before I started my career in adult corrections. Oftentimes, when I met the parents, there would be a look of resignation and exhaustion on their faces. If the kid wound up in a facility like the one I was working in, chances are that things at home, meaning the behaviors of the child, had gotten so out of control that the parents had become desperate for something, anything, that might help their child. Of course, there were other parents whom, once you met them, you went sort of like, oh, that, that's why, because they were messed up themselves. I'm talking about their own mental health issues, addiction, abuse of one form or another, or so on. But this leads me to the case of Candace Newmaker. It's pretty obvious that if you are willing to consider a so-called therapy like this, then you must be desperate for something to help your child. It sounds like the mother was at her wit's end, and that's probably an understatement. Yeah, it sounds like it was probably pretty difficult for her. Sure. So, some quick background. The New York Times wrote an article about a big story back then, which was the death of a Russian adoptee named Max Shadow. This article talks about how, in the 20 years prior, Americans had adopted at least 60,000 Russian children. However, there was a ban placed on American adoptions due to what looked like a string of deaths of these children, roughly one per year after they were placed into American homes. So this is a quote directly from that article, and we will have a link to that on our webpage. The adoption ban was named after 21-month-old Dima Yakovlov who died of heat stroke in Virginia in 2008 when his adoptive father left him in a parked vehicle for nine hours. Anger over adoption was revived in 2010 when a seven-year-old boy, born Artrom Solovyev, was sent alone on a flight back to Russia by his adoptive mother from Tennessee along with a note saying the boy was, quote, violent and has severe psychopathic issues. Wow. Oh my goodness. Right. So she basically just said, she said, I'm going to take this kid. I'm going to put him on a plane. He's got a little note, uh, you know, pinned to him or whatever. And she just sent him back. For a seven year, like, that's so sad. Right. Absolutely it is. There seems to be a disconnect between the good intentions of most adoptive parents. I say most because there was a case of a single man who adopted a Russian girl to sexually abuse her and display this abuse on the internet. So that does happen. But let's say that most adoptive parents want to be real parents, caring parents, good ones. For whatever reason, they decide to adopt a child and have to look abroad to do so. They adopt from Russia or any number of other countries without the full realization of the kind of trauma the child has already been through. Also in the research that I did on this topic, it was acknowledged that many of the orphanages were not forthcoming about the child's true background, instead painting the children as not coming from abusive homes or backgrounds. So here we have a setup for parents to become the unwitting guardians of children who will need significant mental health interventions, including psychotropic medications, therapies, specialized educations, and intensive supervision. This is, it seemed, where Jean Newmaker was when she opted to have Candace treated with the rebirthing technique. 
So Candace Newmaker was not Russian by birth, but she was adopted from a neglectful situation in North Carolina. A lot of her behavior seemed to match the descriptions given by other parents with children diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder, including the ability to grow attached to the parent and other violent and disturbing behaviors. So this is an act of desperation, I think. That makes it difficult to maintain a fully rational mind. You have a parent who is exhausted, who cares about their child and wants to see them get better, and who wasn't expecting to encounter this kind of pathology in the first place. I could see that being really overwhelming. Oh, and it is. It is. Yeah. I remember working in the group homes, you know, before I got into corrections, and you saw it all the time. And the looks and the energy of the parents who would come to visit the kids. I remember a couple times, numerous times, as they left, they just looked at me and they said, good luck with that, you know? Wow. Yeah, because yeah. they knew that we were taking on the treatment of this child, and they had just were exhausted. They couldn't do it anymore. So, but I, what I did want to talk about was this idea of rebirthing. I understand it conceptually, and on that level, the idea seems sound, or it seems to make sense at least. Actually, this therapy is still used today as the original concept of rebirthing, which is focused on breath work, is quite a bit different than what killed Candace Newmaker, which is something that one expert called birth regression, which is, again, quite a bit different. So the idea is simple in nature. That the child is to fight her way out of being pinned in blankets and pillows to be reborn, so to speak, and begin from square one with her adoptive parents and start to attach as a normal child would. Okay, that's simple enough. There was actually some transpersonal literature that I wanted to bring up in reference to this idea of birth and its significance later on in life psychologically. So when I started my PhD, I met one of the true grandfathers of transpersonal psychology at a seminar retreat. His name is Stanislaus Groff. He's a psychiatrist and researcher and most widely known for his work in what's called holotropic breathwork, which was something he invented as a way of bringing on psychedelic experiences without the use of illegal psychoactive substances. Anyway, Dr. Groff has done a lot of work around something he termed as perinatal trauma or trauma that is suffered during the process of birth and that can lead to psychological issues later on in life. This expanded on the work of an Austrian psychoanalyst by the name of Otto Rank. But in Groff's book, Psychology of the Future, Lessons from Modern Consciousness Research, which was published in 2000, Dr. Groff details a number of effects that trauma associated with birth can have on a person. So I won't go into too much detail, as it does get very detailed, but it basically works like this. There are different stages that the fetus goes through each with the possibility of pathology. Depending on the atmosphere of the fetus, that is the womb of the birth mother, the preconscious baby can experience a number of very stressful things that have the potential to manifest later on in life, often psychologically and figuratively. So I think I've mentioned in previous episodes, Jessica, that some of Groff's work that he did had centered around the use of LSD as a way of bringing on images that the participant would then put into artwork and then would be interpreted by them. Yeah, I, I do remember you talking about this. And I know that we've looked at some of the artwork that came out of that, right? which was pretty fascinating. And, and some of it's a little bit creepy. Oh, yeah. Some of, it's, <laughs> some of it's very disturbing. I'm going to get to a, a classic example of that here in a second okay but in many cases during these sessions images of birth would come to the surface for these participants and these participants would suddenly become conscious of some kind of birth trauma that they went through 
such as a cesarean birth, um, such as having the umbilical cord wrapped around their neck, or even when the mother's womb was filled with metabolic substances that were inhospitable to the baby. Let's say if the mother had introduced toxins into the womb, such as drugs, or if the mother was subjected to extreme forms of external stress or abuse herself while she was pregnant. Wow, that, that's interesting. Right. And it does come up quite often, as a matter of fact. And I think that's where Groff really started to do a lot of research into what this process entails, the process of being born. Hmm. Sometimes the birth process can be extremely traumatic, and while the conscious mind may forget about it, the body remembers. This then, according to Groff, needs to be processed and treated later on in life where the trauma will manifest itself in some way such as addiction or other harmful and compulsive behaviors. So I'm going to outline what are called the basic perinatal matrices, or BPMs, which go through distinct stages one through four. This is from the website instituteforlearning.com, and again, we'll have the link on this article to our website. But I'm going to quote the article directly here since I feel like they explain the idea of BPMs more clearly than I could. So basic perinatal matrix one represents the point in the birth process when labor has not yet started and we are fully inside the mother's uterus. This can be a good womb or bad womb situation or a combination of both depending on the circumstances. Stress hormones from our mothers might create anxiety in utero and or nurturing hormones could create pleasant feelings. The surrealist artist Salvador Dali wrote in his autobiography that his own bad womb experience, his parents were in despair over the death of his brother at the time, haunted him for the rest of his life. BPM2 is that point in the birth when labor has started and we are being pushed up against the cervix by the mother's contractions, but the cervix has not yet begun to dilate or open. This can be a very scary experience and people later in life who are traumatized at this point in their birth may feel claustrophobia existential angst, depression, feelings of terror, or other negative consequences. Edgar Allan Poe may have been a BPM-2 baby, as evidenced by his short story, The Pit and the Pendulum, where the character finds himself in a prison where walls are closing in on him, and the only way out is down a bottomless pit. Basic perinatal matrix 3 is when the cervix has opened and we start to move out or push out through the birth canal. This can be both thrilling and also violent and dangerous. For example, the umbilical cord might strangle the fetus at this point. People who get fixated at this point in their births may grow up to become thrill-seekers, but also potentially dangerous individuals. Adolf Hitler may have been a BPM-3 baby with his violent policies and his fixation on strangulation. He often had his enemies strangled. The final stage of birth, basic perinatal matrix 4, is we have left the womb and are now outside in the world. This stage may be associated later in life with feelings of expansion, possibly even agoraphobia, feelings of rebirth, perhaps associated with religious experiences, and also feelings of separation and loneliness. People who have undergone dramatic religious conversions, such as the French philosopher Blaise Pascal or the Apostle Paul of Tarsus, may have re-experienced this stage of birth during their spiritual transformations in adulthood. So that's a direct quote from this article, and again, we'll have a link to that on the website. So that is a basic description of the BPMs, or the basic perinatal matrices that Dr. Groff theorizes. Interestingly, when I met Dr. Groff in 2014, he lectured on perinatal trauma by looking at the work of H.R. Geiger. So for those who don't know, Geiger is a famous Swiss artist and sculptor who was known for creating the Alien for the Alien series of movies starring Sigourney Weaver. 
that design of the alien is his work. That's so interesting. See, I didn't I didn't know that, but I know that that character always scared me as a kid. Oh, of course, it's because terrifying. yeah, it's terrifying. It's and it's meant to be. It's creepy. Very, very creepy looking creature. As it turns out, Geiger and Groff were friends up until Geiger's death in 2014. Groff disclosed that much of H.R.'s Geiger work was actually him working through some perinatal trauma, which is why many of Geiger's paintings depict cold and disturbing images of babies and fetuses in nightmarish situations. His work is instantly recognizable, so if you have never seen his work, Google it, but be warned, some of it is disturbing. Geiger also has done work for Danzig, Jonathan Davis of Korn, and for the Dead Kennedys, which actually brought on a trial for obscenity, believe it or not. It's pretty out there. Yeah, sounds like it. Anyway, this perinatal trauma realization came to Geiger during an LSD trip, and his artwork always reflected his unconscious experience of birth trauma from then on. So my point here is that the idea of rebirthing can have some merit, but it can also be a way of re-traumatizing someone who may have had any number of issues with a difficult birth. I guess what I'm trying to say here is that this therapy, birth regression, as opposed to rebirthing, seems to open up Pandora's box, so to speak, as it relates to a child. The idea of perinatal trauma didn't seem to be a concern, that is, anything that was investigated in a desperate attempt to help Candace Newmaker. Putting her through what may have already been a difficult birth, if her biological mother was addicted to drugs, malnourished, if she was abused herself, whatever, could be a recipe to only exacerbate the behaviors and the trauma they're trying to treat. Again, this was a tragic event, and I do believe that those attempting this therapy were attempting to help this little girl. I think we still have a lot to learn as it relates to the damage that we can inflict on children, even before they're born, and in early childhood. We also need to be aware that severely damaged children will require massive amounts of help developing into well-adjusted kids and adolescents in our rush to become parents ourselves. We really have to approach therapies like this one with a critical eye, which can be difficult when we are trying to help someone we care about deeply. Well, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about, you know, these therapies and reactive attachment disorder itself. But before I do, I just wanted to say that this idea of perinatal trauma is not something that I'd ever heard about. It certainly wasn't anything that we were educated about in graduate school or really a concept that I've ever come across, you know, in my studies. Right. So it's, it's an interesting idea. And, and I've, you know, I mean, I guess if you think about birth, it does seem like it would be painful for, for a baby, very traumatic experience. So in the book, Groff actually cites a number of examples and he gets much more in depth with it. So again, that book was Psychology of the Future. And that was published in 2000 by Dr. Stanislaus Groff. And we had to read that, I remember, before that seminar that we went to in anticipation for his lecture, which he came up to the retreat center in Los Gatos, California, and he lectured on it for the entire day. He had dozens of pictures, again, from that example that I pointed out to you about H.R. Geiger, which Mm -hmm. were fascinating, disturbing, but absolutely fascinating. And he talked a lot about paranormal trauma, the different matrices, what trauma during one of those matrices can mean for somebody later on in life. And he had, like I said, a number of very fascinating examples. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I'll have to, I'm, I'm curious about, I'm going to look at that book and, and read a little bit more about it because it's not something that I'm familiar with. But I am going to talk about something that I am a little bit more familiar with, and that's attachment theory. 
And this is a psychological theory that was first developed by a British psychologist named John Bowlby. Bowlby began considering the importance of the child's relationship with his or her mother back when it, you know, it was assumed mothers would be the primary caregivers. Of course, that's not always the case anymore. But he began looking at this in the 1940s and 1950s and ultimately outlined attachment theory in his book, A Secure Base, in 1990. The basic tenet of attachment theory is that all human beings have an innate drive to attach to other human beings. As infants, we develop an attachment style with our primary caregivers. The best case scenario is that we have parents who are nurturing and responsive to our needs. When this happens, we learn that our needs will be met and we develop what Bowlby called secure attachment. When children are securely attached, they rely on their caregivers for their needs, but also they feel secure enough to explore their environment. Parents provide support and care, but also encourage the child's independence. Now, when things go wrong in that early developmental time, like if a child is abused or neglected, disruptions in that attachment can occur. Children with insecure styles of attachment may be indifferent to their caregivers, reacting to them the same way they would react to a stranger. Or they may show extreme anxiety around their caregiver or be inconsolable when the caregiver leaves. You know, while it's normal for children to show some separation anxiety, this would be something that would go beyond what we would typically see. You know, it's where like the child just cannot calm themselves down. Anyway, the thought is that these early interactions with our caregivers are very important and can impact the way we relate to others throughout our entire lives. When a child experiences significant abuse and neglect, it can result in something called reactive attachment disorder, which you alluded to earlier, David. Right. This disorder first appeared in the third edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM, in 1980. So we're currently on the fifth edition of the DSM, and this disorder remains a diagnosis, although it's changed a little bit from what it was in DSM-3. So currently, to make a diagnosis of RAD, as it's often abbreviated, um, or RAD, the child must have experienced severe neglect or abuse, had several changes in primary caregivers, or lived in an institution where there were many caregivers and the child didn't have the opportunity to attach to them. So in addition, the child must, as a result of this early abuse, neglect, or frequent change in caregivers, have developed a pattern of being emotionally withdrawn. This emotional withdrawal results in the child not seeking out comfort when he or she is distressed. And when comfort is provided, the child doesn't really respond to this comfort. It's not comforting to them. Additionally, the child may display little emotional response to others, demonstrate little positive emotion, and display unexplained fear, irritability, or sadness even during non-threatening interactions with his or her caregiver. So these symptoms are pretty significant. We don't actually know how common this disorder is, but it's actually thought to be rare. And according to the DSM-5, in children who have a known history of significant abuse and neglect, less than 10% will generally go on to develop this disorder. So basically, while this disorder can develop in children with such a history, most children who are abused or neglected won't go on to develop this disorder. So I brought up RAD because the center where Candace's adoptive mother took her for treatment stated that they specialized in treating this disorder. 
And this was a well-known treatment center. Connell Watkins was considered one of the experts in attachment therapy at that time. So she and her methods were featured on the HBO documentary Child of Rage in the early 1980s. Do you remember that documentary, David? I don't remember the documentary, but I know that you talk about it in your forensic psychology class. And you had explained it to me what it was and that you show it to your students. Yeah, I've, I've definitely used the documentary in the past to kind of display or show show an example of of what reactive attachment disorder can look like in a child. And, you know, if you're interested, you can watch this documentary on YouTube for free. But it is just a little warning. It is pretty disturbing. But, you know, Connell Watkins, her treatment center, they were on this documentary. And, you know, she was well-known, she was well-respected, and she came highly recommended. So there was no real reason at that time for Jean Newmaker to think she was taking her daughter to do something dangerous, Right. you know? Right. So I said that Watkins and Ponder practiced what was called attachment therapy. And I just wanted to make a distinction between what they were doing and other empirically validated treatment modalities for children with attachment problems. So the more controversial attachment therapy, like what Watkins and Ponder were using, was developed in Evergreen, Colorado by Foster Klein in the 1970s. By the time of Candace's death, there were a dozen or so clinics in Evergreen doing the same types of therapy. The theory behind these controversial treatments was that children who had been abused or neglected had unexpressed rage toward their abusers, which led them to be manipulative, cruel, and sometimes violent. The theory was that children needed to express this rage as a form of catharsis. Methods that were commonly used were holding the child down, forcing him or her to engage in prolonged eye contact, or using forceful tickling, which doesn't, I mean, that sounds horrible, right? Yeah, sounds like abuse almost. Yeah, these sessions were also reported to last for hours. And again, the goal was to get the child to become enraged, which my guess is that kids probably did. I mean, even as an adult, if somebody did those things to me, I would be enraged. Hmm. So this was all based on an outdated and disproven idea that venting aggression leads to less aggression. So again, that's that catharsis model. But what empirical studies have shown is that encouraging physical displays of anger actually increases feelings of anger and aggression towards others. Additionally, the adoptive parents then needed to exert absolute control over the child to undermine the child's manipulation and demonstrate the parent is ultimately in control. In order to do this, therapists would often instruct parents to confine their children to the home and not allow other social contact. They advocated for homeschooling children to further prevent these social interactions. Parents could also be instructed to demonstrate control by having children complete repetitive tasks, physically demanding chores, or having them sit still for prolonged times. Parents might also be encouraged to completely control the child's food and water intake. So I don't know about you, David, but all of these things just sound like more abuse to me. A number of them sound like prison. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that's the that's the basic theory you know, that we, that is behind the prison is complete control essentially over a particular population. One thing for adults, something completely different for children, which is why the homes that we, you and I worked in with children is so completely different than prison. 
Well, yeah, and we're not just talking about any old child, right? We're talking about children who had already been traumatized. Right. Um, and so, I, you know, it's not good for any child to be treated that way. But just think about the additional damage that could be done to a child who's already gone through trauma. Yeah. So one of the methods that was used by these attachment therapists was the rebirthing technique that resulted in Candace's death. The theory behind this was that the old rage-filled child needed to psychologically die and then be reborn and subsequently reparented by the adoptive parents. Now, just to be clear, there is no research that supports that rebirthing or any of the other techniques I mentioned are effective treatments for reactive attachment disorder. In fact, the research suggests that these interventions are harmful and further traumatizing to children who are already traumatized. Yeah. One of the major, and I mean, there are really so many problems with this, but one of the major problems with these controversial fringe attachment theories is that they place the blame on the children. I mean, really, when a child who has been abused and neglected shows difficulties trusting others or acts out due to the trauma, why do we treat them as if it's their fault? And then doing things to further traumatize them, it's just unacceptable to me. Yeah, I agree. So we know that these quote-unquote treatments don't work. And by the way, there are still centers and therapists who continue to subscribe to these theories and use these controversial therapies. And they will often have testimonials on their websites, which are quite concerning from an ethical standpoint. But they'll cite a particular case where their treatment was effective. You know, this is considered anecdotal evidence, and not to beat a dead horse, it is not consistent with what peer-reviewed research has found. Additionally, rebirthing is illegal in certain states, but in other states, it's still legal to practice, which is, I don't even know what to say about that. Okay, I'm going to get off my soapbox now, but there are therapies that are based in research that have been found to be helpful for children with reactive attachment disorder. What does work is helping parents to create a stable home with consistent parenting that focuses on reinforcement and nurturing rather than punishment and control. Treatments emphasize the parent-child relationship and focus on helping parents to be sensitive, calm, and predictable. Additionally, treatments that are focused, goal-directed, and behavioral in nature have been found to be most effective. The American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry published the practice parameter for the assessment and treatment of children and adolescents with reactive attachment disorder and disinhibited social engagement disorder in 2016. They provide a good overview of reactive attachment disorder and disinhibited social engagement disorder, which used to be part of the reactive attachment disorder diagnosis in earlier editions of the DSM, but has since been made its own disorder in DSM-5. Uh, they also provide some of the research data on the disorders and provide guidelines for assisting and treating children with these disorders. And, you know, we'll have a link to um, this document on our webpage as well, along with the other ones that you mentioned, David. So, you know, people who are interested in learning a little bit more about trauma and how it affects children and what the research suggests as far as ways of effectively treating trauma, you know, we'll have a lot of resources to all of those. You know, I just things. wanted to, to take it back to the episode we did a couple of weeks ago where we interviewed Dr. Robert Barrett and Dr. Louis Francis Goody. 
Dr. Louis made some comments about that. He had brought up the children that were neglected and abused from Romania. And when it was ruled by the dictator Ceausescu, which was a communist dictator at the time, and he had dictated that nobody could use birth control. Now, the, what was horrifying about that, actually, was the consequences of not being able to use birth control, which was scores and scores of unwanted children. He had brought that up a few weeks ago during our interview, where this idea of all these children being adopted out, particularly to places like the United States, and having that problem as well, where these children are coming from completely neglectful or and unwanted you know or abusive homes mm-hmm. the other part that dr louis brought up that i wanted to emphasize again as a connection between this episode and the one we did previously was he believed that we needed to be very very conscious of the care we provide pregnant women he had made the suggestion that these are the most precious precious yeah, I was going to say valuable. Maybe that doesn't term doesn't quite fit, but but in a sense, maybe it does. Precious or important members of our society, because in part of this idea that they are carrying the future generation of our societies, right? right? But yeah. because so many things can go wrong throughout this entire time. I mean, I focused on what happens before birth. You focused on what happens in early childhood, and in any part of that. There could be so many things that could lead to tremendous problems down the road. Yeah. And, I, you know, and I think at least with regard to attachment, you know, one of the things that I want to highlight is attachment theory says that parents like the, the term that they use is they just have to be good enough parents. And so it's not that parents have to be absolutely perfect, right? Right. It's that they just have to not abuse and neglect their kids. There has to be some stability. They have to be able to rely on their caregivers, their parental figures. And I do think that the health of the mother while she's pregnant is very important. We know that even just psychological stress can have an impact on the pregnancy and on the baby. So, you know, I think that those are very good points. And and it is so important to remember that we are responsible for our children and they are the ones that are going to grow up and be the next generation. Right. And so they should be treasured, right? right? They should be cared for and in a way that isn't traumatizing to them. And, you know, and when problems do occur, we as mental health providers or, you know, as adoptive parents or parents, we need to ensure that we're not doing things to further that trauma. So we're going to wrap this one up. You know, this story is a very sad one, but I think that the The silver lining is that there were some laws that were passed to ensure, at least in certain states, that this doesn't continue to happen. So there is that. But if you want to look at any of those resources that we mentioned, they will be on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at psychologyafterdark. So you know, please like our pages there. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please be sure to share it with others who you think might be interested in it as well. And again, we just want to thank you all so much for joining us. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved 
and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Gemendo. <laughs>